Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In him, in them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. may be seated. Well, good morning, Sacred City Moline. Thank you for that. Appreciate that feedback. Again, my name is Josh Gallard, and it is a privilege and an honor for me to be preaching the Word of God to all of you this morning. Um, if you don't know me, well, probably most of you don't know who I am. Uh, I'll give you a brief intro. So I live in Bettendorf uh, with my wife and my three beautiful children. Uh, we co-lead an MC together, and we've been coming to Sacred City about four to five years now. And we say something at uh, Sacred City Davenport, it says something along the lines of the announcements that we're not going to push you any faster or any harder than you're willing to go. And it's kind of funny because I got a text about two months ago from Sam that said, hey, you want to preach for me in July? And I was like, wow, Sam, I mean, did you ask your wife to propose to you over a text too? I mean, that seems kind of out of left field, pretty direct and forward which I can appreciate, it's fine. And so like any good Christian, I told him, Sam, let me pray on it. <laughs> so I prayed on it, I literally prayed on it. I went down in my basement and I prayed and I had the sense of peace, the sense of calm come over me. And I told Sam the next day, hey Sam, yep, I will preach for you in July. And so he sent me the text. And it's funny because the first part of the text that we read this morning, verses one through six, deals with all of creation, right? How God created the heavens and the earth all things immaterial and material come from God. And I was immediately directed back to where I was 10, 15, 20 years ago. See, as a child, I loved science. I loved biology. I loved evolution. I had a grandfather 
who was mesmerized by dinosaurs, geology, evolution. I just used to sit in his office and be captivated by all the information he told me about evolution, about science, about geology. I was captivated. I studied it in college. I studied it in, in postgraduate school. I couldn't get enough of evolution. I couldn't get enough of the way the world was created. See, the Big Bang Theory made sense to me that something came from nothing, that you have all these molecules, all this light, this pressure, this heat, and boom, we have this big explosion, and we have nothing, we have everything come from nothing. How foolish to think that God could have done that. Don't you see all the rationale we have to prove that everything we have today came from that initial Big Bang, that initial strike of lightning that created these amino acids, these proteins, these single-celled organisms. See, the real thing that I was struggling with is that I didn't appreciate and love and cherish the law of God. See, I found it as oppressive. I found it as anti-fun. And so because of that belief, because of my naturalistic belief, my life reflected it. That I could live any way I wanted without consequences and that doing good was a thing only when I wanted to do it, right? I did it for my own benefit. I did it because someone told me to. I did it for convenience. I did it to gain something. So here I am, standing in this pulpit preaching about the very thing I used to deny. How beautiful it is, God's sovereign will, is it not? See, I didn't have a palate for God's ways. And because of that, I sought my own instruction, my own wisdom. And as a result of that, and as a result of gaining those things, I thought I was wise, but I was actually foolish. I was ignorant. I was rebellious. I sought my own kingdom. And it led me nowhere but hopelessness. But by the grace of God, he revealed himself to me, and I no longer found my hope in myself or the created things around me, but the creator and the redeemer of the universe. See, when you have a distorted understanding about who God is and what he is like, you will be inclined to do the same thing I did, to ignore his instruction, to ignore his ways. And you make up your own standards and your own rules, which are always going to be less humane and more oppressive than the, than the law that God gives for his people to live by. It leads to tyranny. It leads to hopelessness. It left me despondent. It left me exasperated. Where are you at this morning? Are you thinking or feeling the same way? Do you feel cut off? Do you feel hopeless? Do you feel bitter? Do you feel joyless? Do you feel angry? Are you concerned or questioning Christianity? Where are you this morning? Maybe you're in none of those places. Maybe you see the glory of God and the glory of his law in your life every single day. Praise God for that. Is my hope to maybe reaffirm that this morning, but is also my goal to show you how this text restores, renews, and enlightens the minds and hearts of men and women not to live a life of ignorance like I did, not to live a life of rebellion like I did, but rather to live a life of flourishment, to see God and God's ways beautiful, life-giving, glorious. It's my hope that this psalm brings you a right understanding of who God is. 
and all his glorious benefits that we receive as we abide by his word, just in the same way that he did for me, just in the same way that he's done for Christians thousands of years in the past, just as the same way he will do for Christians in the future. Let me pray. Father God, your word is infallible. God, your word is powerful. God, your word pierces the hearts and men of men and women all around the world. God, help us see that this morning. Help us see the power and the glory of your word. Help us see the power and glory of your law. And that we just wouldn't see it, Father, that we would respond to it. We respond to it in obedience, just the way Christ responded to it. God, I am a, I am a broken man. I am a sinful man. God, I pray that you think through my mind and you speak from, through my vocal cords that, that this sermon would be all of you and none of me and you may be elevated and your glory would be known to us. I pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen. So let's open our text to Psalm 19. We're going to go through verses 1 and 6. <clears throat> Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heaven and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. See, it's beautiful here. We see David talking about creation. The same thing happens to us when we walk outside. What do we see? We see a beautiful sunrise. We see a beautiful sunset. We see a beautiful mountaintop. We see waves crashing in the oceans under a beautiful moonlit sky. What do you see when you walk out in Iowa, right? Sometimes we think that God fell asleep when he created Iowa, or Illinois for that matter. But no, we have the mighty Mississippi running through our two states, do we not? That is a sheer, beautiful example of God's power, of God's glory, of God's creation, of God's handiwork. There's beautiful bluffs along the Mississippi River. There's beautiful forests. There is an awe to the created world that we have. Tim Keller asks this question specifically to these, these uh, six verses. Why do mountains and oceans, the sun and stars, move us as deeply as great art? Because they are great art. Nature speaks to all without audible words. It's the nonverbal communication that there is a God. It is an awe that is meant to point us to God rather than away from him. In nature, we see the glory of a creator. See, it affirms that creation wasn't just this random thing of molecules and heat and pressure and light that exploded into what we see today. It affirms the very first thing that we see in scripture, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke and things came to life. See, the fact that God created the cosmos and all material and immaterial things tells us something about God. It tells us that he's transcendent. He's set apart from creation. He's all-powerful. Genesis 1.1, he speaks and things are created. Matter forms. He is glorious. His creation reveals his glory, does it not? He is wise. Creation reveals knowledge, and that is a well-designed world. I was looking up some um, facts 
about creation, about the world. And they were fascinating to me when I read them. And then I had to condense them because they're really long. So I'm hoping they still fascinate you guys. But I'm going to read three things that are some crazy information about the earth. So the earth is tilted at 23.5 degrees. It gives us four seasons. These four seasons cause us to have rain, snow, warm, cold. That allows the earth to be as habitable as it is. Too great a tilt in one direction causes freezing, causes too, too high of heat. And as a result, the earth becomes less habitable. Crazy how the earth is tilted exactly as it needs to be. Earth turns once in 24 hours. Do you know how, how fast the earth has to travel around the sun in order to make it around 24 hours? 67,000 miles per hour. So think of this, at the end of this sermon, we're gonna be 67,000 miles further in the galaxy than we were when I first started. See, this is ideal for even heating of all surfaces on the earth. If the, plant rotate, if the planet rotated more slowly, we would have more extreme temperatures during the night and day. The 24-hour day is optimum for keeping the temperature of the earth evenly heated, therefore allowing life on the planet to flourish. The last one, oxygen. See, oxygen gas readily enters into reactions with other gases, with organic compounds, and with rocks. The present level of oxygen seems to be optimum, 21, I think it's 21.3% or something like that. If we had more oxygen, combustion would occur more energetically, rocks, metals would weather faster, and life would be adversely affected. If oxygen was less abundant, respiration would be more difficult or impossible, and we would have a decreased quantity of ozone gas in the upper atmosphere, which shields the Earth's surface from deadly ultraviolet rays. Beautiful, perfect, exactly how it was intended to be, for life to be on here to flourish. Now this carries another layer of implications. If God is the, as the powerful, wise, and glorious creator, guess what that means? He, not us, get to determine how we live. He gets to determine how his creation lives inside of the world that he created. See, when you create something, you get to determine that, right? Think of, think of a video game designer or a board game maker. What do they do? They create the world in which the game is meant to be played, right? And that, those rules, the, the importance of those rules is to maximize the enjoyment and the flourishment of the people playing that game, right? And so the more you play that game, the more you understand that game, the better you become, the more fun you have. I'm foreshadowing here to something else. That same sentiment applies to the created world. See, God creates, and God gets to determine how the world functions. There are rules, there are laws. That's how the world is meant to operate. Just as the sun rises and sets every day, right? What would happen if that didn't, if that didn't happen? Catastrophe. Futility. We are like the sun. We have been created for a purpose, and God gets to determine how we ought to function. But here's the problem. We don't think that God is out to make our lives better. We think he's out to make them harder. He has unfair rules. He has cumbersome laws. It impedes on our vision of the good life. So to get out of God's claim on us, we reject him as a creator. 
See, when I thought it was about science, it wasn't about science, it was about autonomy. I could do whatever I wanted to do because God had no claim on me if I rejected him. Aldous Huxley, who is a English writer and philosopher, wrote this. I had no motive for not wanting the world to have a meaning, consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He's also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he should personally why he personally should not do as he wants to do, or why his friends should not seize political power and govern in the way that they find most advantageous to themselves. For myself, Aldous says this, for myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. See, this is precisely what Paul speaks of in Romans 1, 18 through 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. We see it in creation. He has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Again, what would happen if the sun did not operate the way it was designed to? Futility, catastrophe. See, the same thing happens to us. Creation unravels. We become less than what God intended us to be. Right? Our hearts become like a sunless sky. They become darkened. And a darkened heart is always going to lead to a misconstrued vision of God, the world, and even yourself. Instead of seeing God as good, powerful, loving, steadfast in his love, slow to anger, he becomes a tyrant. We mistrust, we're disobedient because our perception of him is off. We're not hearing what the heavens are declaring. So a flawed view of the creator will always turn into a flawed view of God's law. Now, if you feel like you might have a darkened heart this morning, you probably know what I'm going to say. There's good news. right? God gives us his word. He gives us a law. He shines it on that darkness. Now, this imagery is beautiful that we see in verses 1 through 6, and then we transition into 7-11. So just as there is nothing spared from the sun's radiant heat, there is nothing spared from God's radiant law. It touches everything. Everything applies to it. But embrace the law of God, we must learn to see that it provides flourishing. It's beneficial. It helps us think God's thoughts and not our own. Verse 7 through 11 help us do that. It gives us a high view of God's law to see as it was created to be, perfect and redeeming. Let's keep reading, verse 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. 
More to, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. High, glorious view of God's law. Perfect, reviving, enlightening, wise, equitable, true, sweeter than honey. It's a great reward. Why this attitude? David knows that God's law is an extension of God himself. David has a high view of God. Therefore, he has a high view of God's law. God is for our flourishing. God is for our glory. That's why he created us. His law teaches us to live into that. If God is for us, he cannot be against us. If God is for us, he cannot give bad laws. He only gives great laws. He gives life-giving, flourishing laws. They don't restrict us. They maximize our fun, just like the game maker's purpose is to maximize the fun of a game. Right? God's law is meant to maximize our flourishing. Do you see that the same way, the church? Do you rejoice over it? Do you see how it revives? Do you celebrate it? Do you love it? Or do you see it as a hindrance? Do you see it as a hindrance to your autonomy? Do you see it as a hindrance to what you want to get out of life? House, car, money, possessions, health, job, neighborhood. The list goes on. Do you see it as a hindrance or do you rejoice over it? See, God's law is perfect and redeeming. It brings back that which was lost. It revives the soul. If you don't see that, then you're not seeing clearly this morning. You're failing to see that is the gateway to a good and flourishing life. There's three reasons that I think why we fail to see this. The first one's ignorance. I mean, you're just ignorant of it, right? There's a couple reasons why. You didn't grow up in the church. You didn't go to catechism. You didn't sing you know, the catechism songs in church. You didn't learn how to pray. You weren't discipled, right? You lack an awareness and understanding of God's words and God's ways. But that can be true of us as Christians too, right? We fail to have a good devotional life, reading God's word, meditating on his word, praying over it. Or how about this? Instead of giving our ear to the creator, we give our ear to the experts of the age, the Joe Rogan, the Jordan Peterson, Jocko Willink, who I listen to. Right? We trade in wisdom of God for the folly of men. Now, not, that's not saying they don't have anything good to say. They do. But anything good that they say has already been borrowed from God the creator. So why not just go to the source already? But the beautiful thing about ignorance is that it's easy to fix, right? Seek wisdom in God's word. He makes wise the simple. Do you see that? That's beautiful. You can do that by taking a Bible. I think there's Bibles in the pews, right? You can take one of those home with you. I told Sam I was going to say that, so to have extra Bibles on hand. You got a neighbor you're on mission to, take a Bible from the pew and give it to them. Right? Read your Bible. I know it's so simple, but immerse yourself in the word of God. Don't be ignorant. Be a part of a community, a missional community. Come to the Sunday gathering. Sit under the teaching and preaching of God's word. Place yourself where the word of God is revered and cherished. Licentiousness. This is a disregard for rule or order. We fail to appreciate the law as the psalmist does because we are licentious rebels. 
See, we see God's law as a hindrance to our happiness rather than the highway to both holiness and happiness. We see God as a tyrant, a fun Nazi. We are skeptical of what he says, and so we immediately push back because we mistrust his authority. We think we can do better, right? We think we get to decide what to do with our lives, what to do with our bodies. God doesn't know. I do. Our rebelliousness turns into its own kind of tyranny, though. One of the things is negative consequences due to our folly, or the other is a hard heart. We can't receive and accept good gifts. We reject. We step away. We think we can do better. Either way, licentiousness will lead to a less humane existence and leave a lot of destruction and anti-flourishing in its wake. Breaking God's rules will break you. Third, legalism. We don't see the law of the Lord rightly because we misuse the law. Legalism. Legalism is when our obedience to the law as a mean, is, is we use it as a means to make ourselves more acceptable for God, right? We try to earn our righteousness. God, if I do this, then you're going to do that for me. It's the tit for tat. It's the dance for your dinner. We try to earn our righteousness by our own obedience. See, the problem with legalism is that we don't have a too high view of, God, of the law. We have a too high view of ourselves. We think we can keep the law perfectly, and then we will be rewarded for it. But we realize this, right? We fail every day at keeping the law. So when we struggle with legalism, we try to make ourselves feel better. We try to create these stricter laws that make us look good while ignoring the things that God really cares about. True righteousness isn't an accomplishment of our rule-keeping ability. It is a gift from God. It is revived by faith in God and then works itself out in obedience. Think of Abraham, right? Abraham believed and he was counted as righteous. And then he acted in accordance with his righteousness. He became obedient. The same pattern is true for us as Christians today. See, God desires to straighten out our misconceptions about the law to help you see them rightly, to have a high view of them just as David did. How do we get that? How do we change our view of the law? Again, we have to have a high view of God because God's law is an extension of God's character. If God is glorious, if God is loving, if God is slow to anger, if all those things we hear in scripture are true about God, the same is true about his law. It is an extension of his character. It is a gift. It is a gracious gift to us from God. Now, it may not seem that way because the law condemns, right? It's like a mirror. You look at the mirror, you look at the mirror of the law, and you see all your brokenness. You see all the ways that you failed. You see all the ways that you're not living out your obedience. And then you quickly, you quickly go to autonomy, right? I can't do it. I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to go make up my own ways. I'm going to make up my own laws. I'm going to make up my own rules because I flourish better under my own ways rather than God's ways. But autonomy will always lead to entropy. It will always lead to futility. But here's the beautiful thing. God doesn't only give us his law, but he gives us his gospel. See, God the creator put on flesh, the word incarnate, and he became the God-man Jesus. He came and dwelt among us sinners. 
He left the glories of heaven and came and lived in the depravity of the world, the depravity of man's sin. He grew up. He learned to love and obey God's law. And he did so perfectly. And when he did so perfectly, when he obeyed the law perfectly, he became a perfect savior for us. Just as the sun is the center of God's creation, Jesus is the center of God's law. Jesus paid the price for our disobedience to the law of God. He who knew no sin became sin. Why? So that we could have the righteousness of God. We could have the righteousness of Christ. How do we get that? By trusting Jesus. That is all you have to do. Put your faith in Christ. That is the first step. Believing that he took our place, and now we get Jesus' place. Instead of being cursed by our disobedience, we're rewarded, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ's perfect obedience. This is what cleanses us. This is what revives us. This is the reward that we are given. This is what we see in, in verses 7 through 11, right? This is what is sweeter than honey. This is what is greater than fine gold. It's not our ability to keep the law, but it is the gospel, the substitutionary work of Jesus. Amen. So the Christian doesn't just rejoice in response to the law, but we rejoice and celebrate the gospel of grace, God's glorious grace. Now we see here in verses 12 through 13, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer to King David's request in those verses. What does he say? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Declare me innocent from faults that I do not know that I do. Because I am ignorant, I understand that, God, but declare me innocent from that. Teach me your ways. Keep me from presumptuous sins. What is that? That's sins that I know that I'm doing blatantly. God, keep me from sinning blatantly against your created world, against your creation, your people. Let them not have dominion over me. Make me innocent, God. Make me innocent, Christ. innocent of great transgression. The beautiful thing that we know about the gospel of grace is that even though we sin presumptuously, even though when we sin blatantly, God forgives us when we turn and repent. What a beautiful thing that is. And that all happens because of the person and work of Jesus. Not only have we been justified and cleansed of sin, but we also have the Holy Spirit, the supernatural power that lives in us Right? And it frees us from the dominion of sin. All Christians receive that when we receive Jesus, when we put our trust and faith in him. So now the glory of God isn't known in creation. It is not just in the law, but now the glory of God is on full display in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the ways we grow in our admiration of the gospel is to grow in our love of the law of God. See, we might know God's ways, but the beautiful thing is, is that his power works powerfully in us, right? The Holy Spirit works powerfully in us that we might love and obey God rightly. So we can do as King David does here in the last verse in 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God, let what I speak with my mouth, God, let what I think with my thoughts match up to my heart, match up to my desires, match up to my flesh. Oh, Lord, my rock. 
my redeemer. See, Christ is our rock. Christ is our redeemer. It's by his blood we were made pleasing to the sight of God. It is by the blood of Christ that we are able to profess that. It is by the Holy Spirit who renews us, who reshapes us, who edifies us, who saves us from the depravity of sin and helps us give motivation to live in obedience, right? To have our thoughts and our hearts in alignment together so that we are, in the sight of God, counted as righteousness. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power that it has. But God, we, we thank you for your redemptive grace. The grace that gives us obedience, the grace that gives us motivation to follow your law, to love your law, to love you, but also the one that renews, the one that restores, the one that keeps us from great transgressions, God. That is in Christ that we find these things. And to be more of a human, to be more of a man, to be more of a woman, is to follow Jesus. Jesus is the perfect Adam. God, that is what you created us for. That is what you intended us to be. And in our folly, we've rejected you. So God, help us turn away from that. Help us pursue Christ in all things. And that your glory may shine brightly in this city, in our neighborhoods, in our community, in our country, in our world. I pray these things in your son's holy name.